I'm Yasi Salek, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Today's episode is about a big, important question that could determine the next American president and the future of American politics entirely. Should the U.S. government indict Donald Trump? Now, depending on your ideology or your appetite for utter political chaos, your answer to that question could be anything from absolutely not, no, please, no, to Absolutely, yes, but I don't even know which of the 10,000 things that Trump has done we're even talking about anymore. So for the purposes of focusing us in today's podcast, I think we should keep front of mind three alleged crimes that deserve our attention. Number one, there are the events of January 6th where Trump encouraged a crowd of election deniers to march on the Capitol, which they invaded in an attempt to disrupt an electoral process. Second, the Department of Justice is also investigating Trump's attempts to subvert the 2020 election by installing an alternate slate of electors that would have thrown out the votes of Democrats to give him the win. And third, maybe most importantly, certainly most recently, we've learned that when Trump finally did leave the White House, he took classified documents with him, which he then refused to turn over to the National Archive, which he then lied about to the Justice Department, which then searched and seized more than a dozen boxes from his Florida residence at Mar-a-Lago. For years, liberals have utterly deluded themselves into thinking that Trump was always on the verge of some calamitous legal defeat. Bob Mueller, remember him? He was made into an icon of the left, but no charges were filed in that investigation. The entire Russiagate theory had a lot of smoke and even some fire, but it failed to put Trump in a courthouse. And at this point, you could be forgiven for checking out entirely on the efforts to charge Trump with crimes because they all seem to end the same way, without an indictment. 
If that's going to change, it will largely rest on the decision-making of one man, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States. In a recent essay for The Atlantic, staff writer Frank Foer spent hours talking to Merrick Garland, his friends, his former colleagues, to understand more about who Garland is. How does he think? How might his approach to law allow us to predict the next chapter of the Trump legal saga? And Frank Fowler comes away with a big, bold prediction. The indictment of Donald Trump is now inevitable. And Frank is here to tell us why. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Frank Foer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you recently wrote a profile of U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland after spending some time with him and talking to the people around him. So for people who are curious to know, is this the man who will become the first attorney general in American history to indict a former president? What should we all know about who Merrick Garland is? Merrick Garland, I think most people knew of Merrick Garland before he became attorney general as the guy who never became a Supreme Court justice. I mean, it was his lifelong ambition to be a Supreme Court justice. Uh, On three separate occasions, uh, Barack Obama considered nominating him for the job. And it was only on the third occasion when he seemed too old to get the job that it actually fell into his lap. And then it was denied to him by Mitch McConnell, who transgressed every norm in the history of the U.S. Senate by denying Merrick Garland even a hearing uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he is a um, he's he's a guy who is known as a very cautious institutionalist. He's kind of a creature of the legal establishment. And so he inherited this job of attorney general as the nation's chief law enforcement officer coming on the heels of the Trump administration, which had essentially trashed the Department of Justice. It had ran roughshod all over all of its norms, it used the department to, to punish political enemies and, and reward friends. And Garland was the guy who came in to restore the Justice Department, to have it return to ways that it operated before the Trump administration ruined the place. And so that was his job. That was his mission. And then on the day that he is he's announced, or sorry, the day before he's announced as attorney general is January 6, 2021. <laughs> and so he comes into the job And all of a sudden, he thinks he's going to do one thing, and this massive case falls into his lap. And I think if I, when I talked to people around him, they all said he came in hoping that he was going to be the guy who was going to lower the temperature around legal issues in this country. And instead, he's faced with this case that's filled with all sorts of contentious issues that might very well result in him having to indict the last president of the United States. And so people have always wondered, like, is he really going to be the guy who's going to go all the way to do this thing that's so unprecedented? Um, Or is he going to revert to all of these cautious instincts that he'd accumulated over the course of a lifetime? He is a deep institutionalist. I mean, even as Garland's Justice Department is investigating the president, 
He is also defending Trump in a defamation lawsuit filed by E. Jean Carroll, a writer who accused him of raping her. He's also, as you wrote in The Atlantic, permitted the special prosecutor, John Durham, uh, to continue to investigate the origins of the Russiagate case. So it's it's really b- bizarre for me, as someone who is not at all deep in the inner workings of the Justice Department, to think about this guy overseeing a bureaucracy that is simultaneously investigating a former president and serving as his attorney. Uh, maybe just help us unscramble this. How, how, is he do- how is all this happening at once? So there was a phrase that you hear people in the Justice Department attribute to Merrick Garland, which is return to normal order. And so when he looks at something like the two instances that you mentioned, his instinct is, well, these are prosecutors in the Justice Department who are telling me that this is the right course for us to take. And I look at the precedent, I look at everything that's happened in U.S. legal history, and I say, like, well... I may not like doing either of these things, but if I'm just adhering to historical practices and norms, then I really don't have a choice but to do these things. And so, so that's one thing. And then I think you look at the, 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 the cases against Trump and other aspects. He keeps returning to another phrase, which is that no person is above the law. And so, uh, that's the norm that he's trying to preserve in those other cases. And so it does create this dissidence where, like, on the one hand, he's forced to defend Trump. And then on the other hand, he's forced to consider indicting Trump. It's almost like a Greek tragedy that his extremely conservative viewpoint about the role of the Justice Department is leading him to take on a potential action that is extraordinary right? Like he's coming into office saying, I'm going to just follow the law. I'm going to have the most basic opinions about legal norms. No man or woman is above the law, but that extremely basic attitude might lead him to be the first attorney general to indict a former president, which is, I mean, I think we can agree, like a kind of crazy proposition. It so obviously opens up a a Pandora's box, even if it's just following legal doctrine. You spent all this time with Garland, the people around him. You concluded that it is, quote, inevitable, inevitable that the Justice Department will indict Donald Trump, which, to be totally honest, surprised me. I'm not entirely sure that I agree, but you did the reporting and I didn't. Tell me why you think it is inevitable. So I think it's he's going to be reluctant at every step along the way. But I think that he is somebody who um, came of age uh, professionally in the late 1970s. And in the aftermath of all of the horrible things that Richard Nixon did, uh, there were th- a succession of three different attorney generals appointed by Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, who did the work of creating the modern Justice Department. And their job was to insulate the Justice Department from political pressures. And the third of those attorney generals was a guy called Benjamin Civiletti. And Merrick Garland worked for him. And he was one of his special assistants and sat by him as he edited the rules that created the Justice Department. And and so the core of those rules was to avoid political pressure. And at the core of that sentiment is that the Justice Department should never protect friends and it should never punish foes. Um, and what it really needs to do is kind of vary in this very straight ahead sort of way, apply, apply the law. And so I would say that uh, 
you know, there are a number of cases that the Justice Department is looking at as it relates to Donald Trump, some of which are very complicated, some of which are just so screamingly straight ahead, straightforward cases where the Justice Department is dealing with, I think, fairly binary issues that are just very simple. And if they were to ignore Donald Trump's behavior, they would essentially be undermining this concept of the rule of law that Merrick Garland is so devoted to defending. So at any given moment, Donald Trump is always being accused of like 17,000 different things at once. And it's very confusing, I think, for a lot of people, even those that are following the news somewhat closely to disentangle all the different things that people are saying Donald Trump did. Tell me what cases you are looking at when you make the determination that you think it's relatively inevitable that he'll be indicted. All right, so let me just give you a little bit of a taxonomy to begin with, because part of the image of Merrick Garland as this slow-footed, cautious institutionalist relates to the investigations around January 6th. And so we've had this really stark contrast between the congressional committee that's investigating January 6th and the Justice Department's own investigation. And the congressional committee has always flexed and said, see, this is the way you do it. Like, we're moving quickly. We're starting um, with a theory of January 6th that, it, you know, we talked to the foot soldiers, but we're really starting at the top because we know that it was Donald Trump who incited this mob to go uh, 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 invade the Capitol. And so we need to we need to really just focus our efforts on on pinning the crime on him. And Garland has approached that in almost the opposite sort of way, because there is a textbook way that the Justice Department approaches a big investigation, which it's like, uh, I mean, we see it with with mafia cases or drug 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 uh, cases where you you start with the street dealers and the mules and then you work your way up the ladder until you get the head of the cartel. And so that's the way that he's approached the January 6th investigation. And the January 6th investigations are very complicated because they're free speech issues that are involved with them. And there's questions about motive that are very hard. And the, the congressional committees have all made it look so easy because they've told a story, but they haven't made a legal case. And in fact, they've never had to deal with, because of the way that the committees were structured, um, there was nobody on the case who was a Trump defender. So witnesses were never really cross-examined. There's a lot of hearsay evidence that was introduced into those trials, into those hearings, which were very compelling, but would never stand up in court. And so I think uh, the questions about January 6th are very complicated. That's a question about whether um, whether Trump played a role in obstructing a congressional hearing or was part of a seditious conspiracy. I don't really expect an indictment in those cases to come anytime soon. You're right, because what seems difficult about January 6th, and I've been following the hearings, is that, of course, what happened at the Capitol was both a protest, which is clearly protected by the First Amendment, and also an assault an attempted invasion of the Capitol and, you know, different people were trying to do different things in terms of, you know, maybe some of them were just there for the LARPs and some of them were there to actually overthrow an election and courts are going to figure out who intended to do what. But it seems to me, and just correct me if you think this is wrong, it seems to me that we don't have a smoking gun piece of evidence where the president says to the people who are charging into the Capitol, I, Donald Trump, invite you, beg you to charge into the Capitol to attempt to overthrow this election. 
Instead, what you have is Trump doing what he does, saying a lot of stuff that isn't true, and then doing a lot of wink-winking to his deputies to say, it would be really lovely if someone found 11,000 votes for me in Georgia. It'd be really lovely if someone maybe, you know, canceled this election. Um, but we don't have the smoking gun here showing that he was uh, explicitly seditious. Am, am, am I wrong there? I think that that is correct. I mean, I, it, it's, um, I think they're close just because his public statements just walk right up to that line. And I think if you were an attorney general who didn't care if you lost that case, like you could bring it. But then it's you would you would be inviting all sorts of other questions about whether you were actually being a fair-minded attorney general in the course of doing that. And I so I think that th that's it. And the other thing that just struck me watching the congressional hearings last week is that there's this circumstantial case that they were trying to bring throughout that they were never able to really fully connect the dots on, which is that one of the president's, uh, the former president's advisors, um, outside advisors and oldest friends is a guy called Roger Stone. And Roger Stone sat at this place where there was a nexus between the right-wing paramilitaries who were the architects of the invasion of the Capitol and the ones who were um, had the most advanced plans spoiling for violence and the White House. And, and that Stone was the person who was communicating with both of those parties. And it's clear that the committee thought that there was something there and they could just only flick at it. And to me, this also highlights something that's very important about the Justice Department investigation, which is that, uh, uh, you know, in our society, which, you know, wants instant gratification, we kind of wrestle with the fact that some of these investigations are just complicated because the actors try to obscure they knew they were doing something wrong. And so they deleted all of their encrypted messages. And so there isn't a trail of um, of data that kind of that, that ties everything together in this neat, uh, instantly presentable bow. And so that's why the arduous work that the department does of flipping people along the way is the only way really to be able to get move move up the ladder from from the mules to the, to the bosses. So that's one that's one investigation. Yeah, let's talk about the second investigation because it seems like if we're just talking about January 6th, it's not entirely clear that an indictment is forthcoming. They're getting closer, closer, closer to maybe having the smoking gun piece of evidence, but they're not there yet. So what's the second vector along which the Justice Department is investigating Trump? Well, so clearly there's also adjacent to January 6th, there was this scheme to um, to introduce a, fit, a fake slate of electors in various states who would be presented um, to to the Congress as legitimate and that there was this this fraudulent conspiracy to, to uh, execute that. And along the way, I mean, the Justice Department has been explicit um, that they've they're pursuing this uh, this line, and they've subpoenaed uh, fake electors from Arizona and I think Pennsylvania, and so it's clear that this investigation is churning along. But um, before you get to somebody as high as Donald Trump, you would expect that they would have indicted by now some of the actual state legislators who are involved in this scheme, some of the masterminds of that scheme, and they haven't. So I don't think that that 
um, an indictment in that case uh, for for Trump is anywhere remotely close to happening. Okay, so at this point in the podcast, someone's like, all right, well, you've already talked about two different cases where you don't necessarily see an indictment forthcoming, but you also think that an indictment is inevitable. So that leads us to case number three. Case number three, I imagine, is the Mar-a-Lago mess. Before we get up to the question of what happens to Merrick Garland v. Donald Trump, Let's talk about where we are in the Mar-a-Lago mess. What do people know, have to know about the story up to date? Right. So um, like a president produces um, millions of pages of papers over the course of their term. And those documents are officially the property of the United States government. And at the end of a president's term, they're supposed to get carted off to the National Archives. But when Donald Trump left the presidency, um, he carefully <laughs> packed himself, at least as it relates to um, some, of, uh, some of the paper that he wanted to take with him as he left the presidency. And even though he was supposed to give it all back to the archives, uh, he very explicitly, intentionally took it with him to his beach club in Florida. And so the Justice Department hears from the National Archives that these papers are missing. And some of these papers relate to very, very precious government secrets. And so there's a clear national security interest in retaining the paper in a safe sort of way so that um, so that that it doesn't hand up end up in the hands of people who could use it to undermine the interests of the United States government. And so the 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 archives and then the Justice Department go and very politely ask Donald Trump to return the paper. And Donald Trump doesn't return the paper. In fact, does all sorts of things that suggest that he's never going to return the paper. And um, it, and, and it seems, uh, based on reporting that we have, it's, it's unclear what the source of this reporting is, but that Trump ordered people within Mar-a-Lago to move the documents around in such a way that they would be harder for the Justice Department to ever recover them. And so here you have something that's very, very black and white, that you have um, a president who's broken a law, which is the 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 the, the laws that govern um, what happens to presidential papers? You have the fact that he's very clearly obstructed the Justice Department as it sought to uh, to return these papers. And I think if you're Merrick Garland, there are two things that start to enter your mind. The first is like you've said that no person is above the law, yet Trump is acting in a way in which he is above the law, that, the, that these laws don't, don't pertain to him. So I think that that, that case would be, would be hard un, unto itself. But the fact that he's obstructed justice in such an obvious way, I think is something that Merrick Garland is going to find almost impossible to swallow because they've given Trump all these opportunities to comply and he's 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 resisted. And just to go back to the original theme of this conversation, we describe Merrick Garland as an institutionalist. And in the course of this war that Trump has conducted with the archives and the Justice Department, he's made war on the Justice Department. He's accused uh, FBI and Justice Department officials of planting evidence. They've, he's accused them of nefarious motives. He's unleashed a wave of threats and abuse targeting the Justice Department. And it's hard to make Merrick Garland's blood boil, but this is the sort of thing that makes Merrick Garland's blood boil. It also seems to me in this case that 
Trump takes these classified documents that could include secrets about foreign leaders. It could include information about uh, agents in the field, the movement of our enemies, information about uh, nuclear weapons. He takes them. The National Archives asks for them. And then when the Justice Department is contacted by the National Archives, we have a former president who won't give classified information back, he seems to clearly, or his lawyers seem to clearly, lie to the Justice Department and say, we don't have them, or we don't have them here at Mar-a-Lago. And so the, the, the DOJ subpoenas video evidence of people moving boxes in and out of the basement after they say there are no boxes in this basement of Mar-a-Lago, it just seems like the clearest possible case of you say one thing to the Justice Department about classified information, and then they immediately see on a videotape that the opposite is true. That's why far more than January 6th, which seems like an extremely unethical thing, wherein I can't find a smoking gun moment of clearly illegal behavior on the part of Donald Trump. This seems like another case of ethic, of, 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 um, of, of incredibly immoral behavior, where the proof of the lie, the proof of obstruction is much clearer because nothing is clearer than a videotape. Yeah, that's right. So let's put ourselves in Merrick Garland's mind at this moment. Like, I, I don't think you, what you just described in the way that you and I have been thinking about this all along, we see this constellation of cases as somehow interrelated, interrelated that there's a bad guy who's being, who's being, who's unaccountable. And, um, we, you know, we couldn't nail him on these first two cases. So we're going to nail him on this obvious third case. I don't think that's the way that Merrick Garland thinks about these cases, I think he'd find that kind of thinking abhorrent because you don't you don't use the Department of Justice to penalize somebody just because they're an enemy or just because they're a deeply unethical person committed to the destruction of democratic institutions, right? And so for him, um, he has to decide the Mar-a-Lago case on its own terms and its own merits. And even then, even as it's black and white, there's this moment um, in any case where the prosecutor has what's called discretion. And so he can decide that it's not worth bringing a case against a former president for whatever reason he he decides that it's uh, that it wouldn't be worth it to do. And so um, I just think that when you get to that moment of prosecutorial discretion for Merrick Garland, as it relates to this case, the fact that Trump is assaulting something that's so near and dear to not just his heart, but to the way in which he thinks that our democracy functions, which is this question of, is, a, is, is anybody above the law? Mm -hmm. When Julia Kayyem came on the podcast, I talked about the fact that like he's basically treating the White House, which a typical president should revere as a kind of museum, as a gift shop. Like uh, information yeah. comes across his desk yeah. and he's like, ooh, yeah. this could be valuable. Information comes across his desk. This is a nice collectible. Maybe I can find some way to monetize this later. And if I'm if I'm Garland, this goes a little bit to, uh, you know, thinking <laughs> like, like an ordinary person rather than like the attorney general. But when you think about who Donald Trump is, this is someone who's talent, extraordinary talent across his career is to make a business opportunity of every piece of land and every piece of information that he sits on. And you really don't want a former president creating business opportunities of 
uh, information about agents in the field and the you know affairs of our um, allies and the reality of our enemies. You, you, you don't want someone trying to monetize this sort of thing. So the urgency around putting his feet to the fire seems much higher here versus something like January 6th, where fundamentally, as terrible as it is, you are investigating an event that is over. It's it, right. ongoing attacks, you could argue, on American democratic processes are not over. But like January 6th itself has concluded but there are still reasons to think that if Trump could keep some material in one basement of Mar-a-Lago and lie to the DOJ about it, well, why should we trust that all of the information was gotten by the first search and sheezer by DOJ? Like, this just seems like a much more important thing for Merrick Garland to move on. The, the, only, the only thing that I would um, quibble with about is in your analysis, which I basically agree with, is that, you know, January 6th was a day isolated in history, but... It is it is part of kind of an ongoing attempt to subvert American democracy, and there are important reasons to punish that behavior in order to deter it from happening again. And uh, you know, in that regard, I do think that all of these cases that Merrick Garland has brought to date actually do play an important role in deterring the repeat of January six. I I think, you know, I would wish personally as a citizen that he punished the fake elector schemes and some of these other schemes um, that are adjacent to the day itself, because um, those schemes clearly could be repeated again in the future. And there's there's there is a uh, to use a phrase from the January 6th commission, like a clear and present danger posed. And so there's a need for an important intervention now. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. 
Just go to indeed.com slash plane right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When would Garland have to make this decision to indict Trump for, let's just say, Mar-a-Lago specifically? Yeah, so one of the things that I... uh I engaged in was a kind of a thought expert exercise where I called former prosecutors and asked them, what would the trial of Donald Trump look like? And when I started to engage in this thought experiment with them, the question of timing was something that they brought up almost instantly, because you have to assume that there's a high possibility that there will be a turn of administration in 2024 where Republicans, maybe even Donald Trump himself, assumes power and kills whatever investigations, whatever cases in motion on the first day that they're back in office. And so you have to start to think backwards from that date. Um, and uh, so you've, you've got the date January 20th, 2025. You have a year maybe even slightly longer for uh, uh, for a trial to get scheduled. And so you need to make an allowance for that. Then um, then, then there's a period where, then there's the trial itself. And a documents trial would probably be much more straightforward than a case about January 6th. When I asked them how long a January 6th case could take, I mean, I was told it could take almost six months. Um, a, a documents case could take anywhere between two weeks and two months, um, is what I was told. And so you have to price that into into the calendar. And so, uh, you know, basically, what I was told was by the end of the spring of the next year, there would probably have to be an indictment in order to have a trial before the turn of administration. And this is where, to me, the future just becomes almost unthinkable. Like, I can't fully concretize what happens. Like, all right, so let's say Merrick Garland indicts Donald Trump. And six months later, a or excuse me, a year later, a trial starts. And let's just say it's a really complicated trial because this is the first trial of a former president. So rather than take two weeks to two months, it ends up taking, you know, whatever, three months, four months. We are now... <laughs> basically in the middle of a presidential election. We're in the middle of a presidential election and Donald Trump has just been, let's just say, convicted for obstruction of justice in the case of absconding with pieces of uh, classified information from the White House. What happens then? I mean, there, there's a precedent, which is Eugene V. Debs, the socialist candidate for president in 1920, ran for president from, from prison. Um, so like it's it's not it's not I mean I don't we don't know that Donald Trump would be convicted we don't know that Donald Trump would, would go would be sentenced to 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 prison for whatever uh, he's indicted for um, uh, you know maybe it's just community service but um, or maybe he's not indicted at all but 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 it is the the whole spectacle just beginning from beginning to end is um, is kind of boggles the mind the idea that this guy who's sitting at the defendant's table during this trial would also be running for president is like, is it in and of itself something that um, is just so complicated. And so, you know, I, I thought about trial management um, in the course of this. Uh, so um, 
Some of this depends on the judge who's randomly assigned, would be randomly assigned to his case. There's some judges who are Trump appointees, who are kind of, or cantankerous old codgers, who would be sympathetic to Trump and who could like abet his efforts to delay. Because Donald Trump's ch- t- primary tactic is going to be to delay as long as possible, uh, preferably to January 21st, 2025. Um uh, on the other hand, there are judges who um, presided over the case of Roger Stone and Paul Manafort when they were um, when they were tried for their role in Russia Gate related crimes, and those judges were very very strict and, and ended up imposing gag orders. So Roger Stone, who has a disposition that's not dissimilar to Donald Trump's, who uh, you know can't resist. Uh, giving inflammatory quotes or to attacking his adversaries. By the time Roger Stone's trial was over, the judge had restricted his ability to post on social media. The judge had forbade uh, Roger Stone from using proxies to speak on his behalf in the press. And so, you know, I, as a judge, like, could find myself very, very frustrated with Donald Trump as a defendant and feeling like, well, if I'm just going to treat him like any other citizen, then... I'm going to prevent him from using this trial as a campaign platform. It's, I mean, it's so, so strange to put together what you consider an inevitability and what at least the political betting websites consider a probability, which is Donald Trump narrowly edging Ron DeSantis in the Republican primary and becoming the Republican nominee for president in 2024. You have a situation where it kind of the same way, what what occurred to me, and maybe this is a terrible metaphor, but the same way that Joe Biden was essentially under like self-imposed house arrest in his basement for a lot of 2020, (laughs) you know, just basically like sending out messages and recording, you know, videos straight to camera videos with his wife saying, here I am in the basement, COVID's really bad, you know, vote for me for president. The president is trapped at a defendant's table. So, it is incredible uh, material for Fox News, incredible material for the right, because this impression that the right has, that the left is constantly trying to demonize Donald Trump, is cast in vivid technicolor on people's televisions because there he is being prosecuted by the DOJ. But at the same time, I don't want to like go full galaxy brain here and say, oh, this helps Donald Trump. It's like, no, it, it, no one wants to run for president while being accused of obstruction of justice, maybe being in incapable of tweeting or running normal presidential campaign uh, uh, protocols because the judge won't let you out of whatever courthouse area in Florida this this trial is happening. It, it would be an absolute utter mess. Yeah. I mean, there's no way, there's no way around it, which is why um, just to I'm not to, the, the headline of my piece used the word inevitability in my my article I, I I certainly allow for the possibility that while I think that it's um this is the likely outcome I could also be wrong um about this it's a, it's a, it's a piece of speculation but I think that uh everything you just described is something that can't help but also enter into Merrick Garland's mind as he ponders this decision and if there's a reason why I'm wrong it's that he looks forward. He imagines this whole spectacle. He worries that maybe he's actually putting his thumb on the democratic processes by doing this in a way that um, he's not comfortable with. I mean, we all think back, obviously, to James Comey and the announcement he made about the investigation into Hillary Clinton's email and the impact that that might have had on the course of the 2016 presidential election. And I think 
clearly uh, within for Merrick Garland, for other people who've examined that that episode, that that was a bad uh, this bad procedure. It was it was uh, it was um, non it was interference in a presidential election in the the guise of non interference. So um, I'm sure I'm sure that this has to enter into Merrick Garland's calculus as he he ponders what he does because how could it not? It seems to me like there's really no decision here that Garland can make that doesn't bear significant risk to the legacy of the Justice Department. Because if he indicts the president, the far right will despise him and will use, will see this as the opening of a Pandora's box and use it to indict former Democrats for decades. At the same time, if he's seen as failing to hold Trump to account, the left will despise him and perhaps even reasonable lawyers will consider him a coward They'll say, you had evidence in your hands, clear, obvious evidence of obstruction of justice. You had a videotape in your fingers showing that the president was lying to you about holding state secrets, and you did nothing? You're the attorney general of the United States, and you did nothing? What kind of a law enforcement agent are you? I, 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 it, it really, it's, it's excruciating to think about, and I, um, I don't think there is a path forward here that doesn't bear that kind of risk to the legacy. I think if you look at impeachment and the way that impeachment over the course of my own lifetime has been transformed from this thing that was used only once back in the 1860s in extraordinary circumstances to something that is now kind of a routinized piece of American politics, it's hard not to imagine that once you do the same thing with the indictment of a former president that we end up in a situation that is akin to, uh, it's just something that's afflicted Ukraine, where every former Ukrainian president gets prosecuted by the person who's replaced them. And it's created this um, this horrible, um, horrible undemocratic practice. Um, but what you've just described, this no no win situation that Garland finds himself in, I think you know in in my piece, I describe it as actually being a fairly liberating thing. So all of these all of these external considerations really cancel each other out. Like if you if you try to appease the right, you're going to end up disappointing the left. If you think that you're preserving American democracy by preventing a civil war, you're undermining American democracy by uh, by allowing the rule of law to be run roughshod over by allowing this guy who's um, who's tried to 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 disassemble democratic institutions to just keep on going. And in the end, what choice does Merrick Garland have? It becomes a matter of conscience. And for him, a matter of conscience is really ultimately about this principle of the rule of law. And so He's just stuck in this situation where to think about the external externalities means like you really just like your 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 institutions gonna get slammed no matter what. All you can do is faithfully apply the law. These are his canonical texts. Like this is the thing that he's actually most comfortable doing. And I think in the end, that's what he'll do. We mentioned timing a couple minutes ago, and I just want to end on the timing issue here. Um, it's been, what, we're in 2022, Donald Trump has been a part of our uh, political lives in this case for about seven 
years. And I feel like every three months, there is a new article of faith among the left that we are mere hours away from the indictment of Donald Trump and the removal of his specter from the American political scene. They've been wrong every time. The left has been wrong a thousand times up to now. For those who believe your analysis, when? Like, exa- make, make a prediction, even if it's, if it's loosely held. A- around what time do you think we would get this indictment? Right. Well, so let me just say one thing about your what you just described about the left. I do think that there is um, this critique that's very fair where the left has held out this hope that legal processes could succeed where democratic processes have failed. And I think that that's that's bad thinking on the left's part. I mean, that the well, idea democratic that processes this- succeeded, I mean, in, in 2020. The, right, the person right, who won right, the popular right, vote right, was, right, you know, right, right, inaugurated. Right, right. But there was like, I mean, the, the the great hope of the Robert Mueller investigation, right? And that, and and even here, I feel like there's this uh, sense among a lot of liberals that Donald Trump possesses some sort of mystical powers. He's never going to disappear. Uh, you know, until he's shackled, and that's bad thinking. <laughs> you know, it's like he should only be he should only be um, indicted if there is a strong case that almost can't lose in the courts um, to indict him with. But on the question of timing, all right, you're 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 pinning me down, um, but I've set myself up for this, like with the the piece that I wrote, so I can't weasel out of your question. Um, you know, my, my guess would be that it would happen um, sometime in late spring of next next year. I mean, I, I don't think that that Merrick Garland is thinking about the turn of administrations and the fate of his case. I think he's the clock, the, the timeline that I imposed on Merrick Garland is not the timeline that he's going to use to make his own decision. But I would think that if by the by late spring next year, you don't have a case to bring against Donald Trump on, on Mar-a-Lago documents. You're never going to have a case to bring. Like, there's nothing that you can do that would make. There's no. You couldn't wait any longer than that to let the case ripen any anymore. This is so straightforward. Either you do it by then, or you don't do it. All right. I'm setting my Google calendar. End of Q2, 2023. Um, if you're wrong, I'll have you back in the podcast in June of next year and we'll light our Robert Mueller vote of candles and um, sob about <laughs> Donald Trump's ability to wriggle out of yet another yeah, one. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll meet a couple then. Yeah, Frank, Frank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating, leave a review. And don't forget to check out our TikTok at Plain English underscore. That's at Plain English underscore on TikTok. 